beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first verse of the gospel of Mark. We're back today with Calm in the Chaos. Christ lives in the heart of a champion. And it is a great joy to be back for this week of the Code of Man podcast. And thank you for listening. We're in Mark chapter 3. I titled my notes that, I, that I've written out here. I titled this chapter, Axis and Allies. You were about Would, to say? I was about to say, I like that. When you sent me that in, in our um, information exchange a couple of days ago, I'm really looking forward to see the direction because I can kind of see that throughout chapter 3, but I'm, I'm looking forward to engaging the conversation. When you look at Mark chapter 3, I think it jumps kind of jumps off the page that Jesus is walking right down the middle here. And on one side, he's finding his friends. And on the other side, you see the rise of the opposition. Mm -hmm. And I think the two defining moments maybe are are in that, the rise of the opposition, but also the calling of the 12 disciples happens in this chapter. And so a a lot we learn about Jesus, about his character, about his approach to ministry, about his relationship. So let's get started. In the first six verses, I just kind of put all these together, verse 1 through 6, and I think what you see here is Jesus addressing the accusers head on. So for those that can't look at their Bible right now, because we're not going to read every verse of the chapter, but just to give a summary to those who aren't looking at a Bible, this is when it says Jesus goes into the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And verse 2 says, they, And they watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. So it, it's, their, their, their eyes are on Jesus just looking for fault. And Jesus is going to deal with that head on because he said to the man with the withered hand, stand up. And then he turns and looks at the accusers, the probably Pharisees, scribes, all that, that crowd that were against him. And he asked a question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But what was their response? Absolutely nothing. nothing. Yep. They got nothing to say. They got nothing to say. So as I'm looking at this, and of course, we'll, we'll, I'll point out verse 5 in a moment, but as I'm looking at this, I said Jesus addresses the accusers head on. I want to think about my role, your role, the listener's role. We all face accusations, and the, the great accuser is Satan himself, but you're going to have that in your life. There are going to be people that are going to find fault with you and look for something to point out. So how do we deal with that? Well, Jesus addresses it head on. And I don't think Jesus here is, I think what you see here is he's not a man who's avoiding risk. And we know we live in a risk averse culture. I think I said that mm-hmm. right. We are taught, trained, and and coddled around the idea that, hey, you shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to feel pain. You shouldn't have to go through hardship. And society teaches us to do all we can to avoid that. But Jesus enters into this risk. He doesn't avoid it. But I do think 
I do think he's using wisdom. I'll say this and get your thoughts, but he's measuring his words and actions in what we think of as that risk-to-reward ratio. So Jesus doesn't just walk around picking fights all the time is what I'm trying right. to say. But he wades into this one and, and pretty much picks a fight, but he does it because he believes that this is one of those occasions where the reward outweighs the risk. Absolutely. And I love the fearlessness that Jesus displays here because I think so many times we find ourselves in, in the same kind of boat of knowing that you know somebody is watching us and they're, they're watching us to try to find fault. I think especially if you have any kind of testimony at work or you know with lost family members or anything we we've experienced that that scrutiny of somebody just waiting for us to stumble and it brings a lot of pressure because you're constantly in the back of your mind thinking okay if I say this they're going to pounce on me or I'm going to do this that and the other and if we're not careful that pressure can cause us to be inept where we just shut down and don't do anything or we won't move forward or we won't do what needs to be done because we're afraid of making a mistake and afraid of doing the wrong thing. And Jesus is completely fearless with this. He knows that these guys are hawkeying everything that he's doing. What's he going to do? We're going to nitpick this. Uh, They're very skilled. They're silver-tongued and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus calls them right out and moves forward and does the right thing and not to you know, necessarily just to prove a point, but he does the right thing simply because it's the right thing to do. And he asked him, you know, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Is it is it lawful to do good or, or is it lawful to do wrong? You know, I'm just going to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. And uh, he moves forward and we can learn from that and, and tap into some of that boldness as well. And the fact that they don't answer him is not because they don't know the answer. It's because to answer him is to self-incriminate. It's to validate what he's about to do. Right. And and that's where he was very gifted at what Proverbs says about answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. Yep. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Jesus knew. Because, you know, sometimes we feel like, well, if I say anything, it's going to be taken wrong. If I do anything, they're going to find fault with it. And Jesus knew there's sometimes you got to go ahead and just do it. Yep. Because they're always going to be somebody that finds people that find fault. And I guess one of the hardest things, one of the most difficult places is when you're when you're genuinely setting your heart to follow the Lord and you want to serve people and then it's the people in I mean let's put it in in our churches, let's put it in ministry, let's put it among the brethren. That that can be one of the most hurtful places to be judged or to have somebody always looking at you to find fault. And so I think the the turnaround lesson is we've also got to make sure that we don't act like that. Mm-hmm. Don't be the people that are looking and, and making the prejudgments on everybody. But, I mean, clearly this issue. So it, it was obvious they were in the wrong. Jesus is in the right. And, and here's what I want to point out before we move on. He was motivated by compassion for the man, the crippled man. Verse 5 says he was motivated by something else. When he looked around about on them with anger. Mm-hmm. Jesus does what he does out of compassion and anger. And so many times we're told that, you know, there's no place for such thing. We can't be angry, you know? And I love, too, you know, his his motive, and you might be getting ready to get here in just a second, but his motive is also kind of revealed in verse number seven because there's so much about what takes place here. There's no ulterior motives other than Jesus does what needs to be done because of compassion for the for the the victim, the the one who is in need, anger at uh, those that are refusing to do what they really know should be done. They know the right answer, yet they're doing this that, and the other. 
But Jesus isn't doing this to make a name for himself because, in verse number 7, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples. So this thing starts blossoming. You know, the Pharisees, they, they're getting ready. You know, there's, there's this big showdown at the OK Corral that's getting ready to take place. And Jesus just leaves. Yeah, and I, I think part of Jesus' departure in verse 7, and that does introduce the second part. I'll make a point of this next section. But there's a part of me, and I don't know that if it's just because I am not as strong as Jesus, but I, I somehow believe that part of Jesus' withdrawal was he needed time to recover. Like, that took a lot out of him. Mm-hmm. And the confrontation was not something that he relished. And I believe that there was a need for recovery. And, and that recovery process includes prayer and time alone with the Father and time to be surrounded by the allies, right. really. So verse 7 through verse 12 I grouped together. And the point that I wanted to make out of this, and maybe speaking to all of us, but if there's some pastors or some ministers listening right now, Jesus shows us something here, we'll call it bringing a balanced approach to ministry. Uh, So you mentioned already, verse 7 tells us that he withdraws himself, him and the disciples go down to the beach. They withdrew to the sea. And, uh, of course, the multitude follows them. But Jesus says in verse 9 to his disciples, he says, hey, get a boat ready because this multitude is kind of pressing on me. And I I think he's getting his escape plan. And so what I wanted to say is, is Jesus realizes and he shows us here that you can't allow yourself to get so busy that you get hemmed in where you don't have time for solitude. You don't have time for fellowship with the Father and prayer. And one of our great enemies in life, in our walk with God, in ministering and serving, one of our great enemies is our busyness. We are too busy and we have allowed ourselves to be pushed into this mode of living. And this quote that both you and I have seen it a number of times in different places by Dallas Willard, where he said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. This busyness keeps us from an intimate walk with God. And Jesus said, I'm not going to sacrifice that. Not for the crowd, not for my enemies, not even for my friend. Mm -hmm. The most important relationship I have is with the Father, and I will make sure that there's a way to get that. Absolutely. I wrote down, Jesus wasn't tied to the show. Everything that takes place there uh, in, in, the, in the synagogue, you know, that would have been a spectacle. Anytime that there's a throwdown between the religious leaders, there's going to be a crowd. Jesus leaves. Then there's this multitude that's following. He's got his little ship ready to, to make that exodus, to, to, to break away, to get out. So many times all throughout Scripture, we see Jesus leaving. He's not a performer. He's not there for the 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 applause and the praise of men he's not just up there to be in front of people he has a ministry to people he has a responsibility uh to the father to bring this message to the people but he's not i think maybe we would describe it addicted to the to the praise of men he doesn't have to have the 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 accolades of men when it gets time that he's like okay enough's enough he makes that break, and we need that as well. I think it's very easy, especially men in the ministry, men and women in any kind of position of leadership, if we're not careful, to get drawn into you know, the show. Or if we're not careful to get drawn into the busyness and everything that's going on because it feels good or that's where we find our validation. No, we find our validation from the Father, from that intimate walk with Christ. And we got to break away from the busyness so that we can truly get validated from where it really matters. So that's where the application fits anybody and everybody. To the person that's out there working themselves to death to please the boss, 
the, the parents who are doing everything under the sun to keep the children happy. All of that is a, a quest. Our busyness is a quest to find affirmation somewhere other than in our relationship with the Lord. Right. And, and that's the thing that Jesus was not going to sacrifice. Now, the next part of this, the next section, beginning in verse 13, again tells us that he goeth, goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. Now, if you read the commentary on that in, I think, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 6, what happens is Luke tells us that Jesus went up into that mountain by himself and prayed all night long. And then he calls his 12 disciples. And I wanted to call this section because what happens is he prays, he's up in the mountain praying, and then he ordains the 12, verse 14 says, and then it, it names all of them. And so this section, I just wanted to say, the principle lift out is choose your friends carefully. Jesus was very deliberate in this, and, and I think he knew who he was choosing before that night, but the process that needed to happen and the calling them and what that was going to do to them, I think he was much of what he was praying over was to pray for the disciples. When they, you know, the next day they're going to be summoned and called out from the crowd. But, but for you and I to make application in this, here's a question. Who are you going to completely trust and open up to? So if we look at it from the standpoint of Jesus as being very deliberate and careful in choosing his closest allies, who, are we, who do we have in our life? And are we using discernment about who we open up to and fully share our heart with? Because newsflash, if you haven't figured this out, you can't trust everybody with your heart, not even yep. people that you think you should be able to. And it's it's no coincidence that Jesus spends that night in prayer. He selects his 12, and one of them is still Judas. I mean, I think the, the lesson is, yes, we have to be selective. People can still burn you. I mean, there's still that, there's still that reality, but there's also a plan and a purpose in, in every person that is in our life. And I think if we follow, you know, obviously Jesus knew Judas had a purpose. The Father knew Judas had a purpose. So it was no coincidence that he got selected. I think what we learn from our life is if we follow this same method of really considering who we're going to open up and really making that a matter of prayer, really seeking the wisdom and the direction of the Father, then when people inevitably burn us or hurt us or break our trust or something like that, we can accept it and understand, okay, there's a plan. God has something to redeem from this. There is a purpose for that. There is something that is at play here. You know, I don't have to be just distraught and just completely, all right, well, I mean, I, if I can't trust him, I can't trust anybody. I'm just going to get completely just upended. No, I can move forward knowing that this didn't catch God by surprise. God still has a plan in this. But to your point, so many times we don't do that. We just flippantly make our decisions on who we're going to spend time with, who our close confidence are. And then when we get burnt, we're like, oh, what happened? Well, it's because we didn't really consider. Yeah, and and it's because we don't really understand what true intimate fellowship and relationship is about. So we get upset because we told our deepest, darkest things to somebody and they blabbed it, you know? Yeah. Well, why did you tell them in the first place? What was your motivation? Why them and why share that? And really, if we're honest, does it surprise you? I mean, when you hang around people that are gossipers and slanderers, yeah. you should expect to get gossiped on and slandered. But what I notice about this in verse 14, it says he ordained 12 that they should be with him. What Jesus wanted was literally a group of people he could just be with. Everybody wanted something from him. Everybody needed something. 
And as the popularity grew, the crowds grew, they all wanted something, and, and most of them rightly so. But Jesus needed something too. He mm-hmm. needed some, some people that he could just be with and, and draw from that relationship and, and just be himself. And I mean, not that he was never not himself, but you know, right. in the expression, the way we would use it, just let the hair down and enjoy their company. And we all need that, but be careful, choose your friends carefully. And yes, summarize the point, as you said, you're still probably going to get burnt or hurt at some point. Just trust it to the Lord, move on. You've done the same thing to other people. Right. Then, to wrap the chapter up, I would say from verse 20 on through the end of the chapter, verse 35, the big lesson you learn here is prepare to be misunderstood by most people. And this starts out, verse 20 and 21, talks about Jesus' friends come to him. And there's a multitude gathered around, and his friends heard of it. They went to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Here Jesus is surrounded by his friends. His friends come in. They misunderstand him. They say, he's crazy. We, we got to get him out of this. He's lost his mind. What is he doing? He's beside himself. Maybe they thought he's being overworked, whatever, but he's losing it. We got to get him out of there. Then you get the scribes, and they begin to accuse him here, and he's saying he hath Beelzebub, and he's got the power of Satan, and that's how he's casting out all these devils, and you know, Jesus responds to that. How can Satan cast out Satan? I almost see Jesus doing this with that kind of, how can Satan cast out Satan? What yeah. are you, you know? But uh, so I, I see his friends say he's crazy. The scribes are saying he's evil. So he's being misunderstood by them. And then at the end of the chapter, his family shows up. And I will admit there's a little bit of speculation here because the primary thing that happens is Jesus' response to the third party, meaning his mother and his brethren were outside calling for him. Hey, let Jesus know we're here. We need to see him. Now, I really don't know why they were needing to see him, but I do know that his brothers didn't really believe in him at first. Mm-hmm. But the, somebody comes in and says to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brethren are outside looking for you. They want to talk to you. And Jesus' response is, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looks round about on them that would set with him and said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. I, I am admitting there's some speculation here on my part. There's some theory. But I look at this, and I think maybe his family is, you know, so his friends say he's crazy. The scribes say he's evil. And I, I think maybe his family's saying he's absent. Like, Jesus, we need you too. Now, not in the not in the way like the man who works too much and doesn't give time to his family and he's not there for them and they really need him. But like maybe there maybe there's this sense of Jesus, you can't you can't leave us. I mean, this was a different time. Maybe Joseph's out of the picture for whatever reason. We don't know. Jesus is obviously the oldest of all his half siblings or whatever. I, I don't understand all that. But I just think that might be the message that they were conveying. Perhaps is we need you. We need you. And and here's the thing you got to understand. Sometimes your family is going to put some pressure on you. And they're going to say, no, 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 we need you here, and, and you have to do this, and you can't be away doing that, and you can't go over there and do that for them. We need. There's a line between genuine need and selfishness. Yeah. And I think Jesus is addressing here, no, the people that really need me are the ones that I'm with right now. So there's an application. Bottom line, you're going to be misunderstood by most people. Yeah. It's not a matter of if it happens. It's just a matter of when. And how often. Exactly. Each day. But there's so much that we can learn because, again, Jesus isn't swayed by any of that. He continues on. He just does what he's supposed to do. And I don't think it's that he was cold-hearted or calloused. He just understood this is not. This is just the reality. I'm going to be misunderstood. I'm going to be, you know, my intentions are going to be, you know, misrepresented and all that. But I'm going to continue doing what I know that I'm supposed to do 
and I'm just going to let the Father sort everything out. And eventually, people will come to the proper understanding. Like you mentioned his brothers. A lot of them became giants in the early church. They eventually figured things out, and it took time. But while they were upended about it, Jesus continued moving forward with what he needed to do and allowed the process of God to take place. So you're saying we've got to be patient with people. Yes. Well, that's Mark chapter 3, Axis and Allies. You're going to be misunderstood, but... Hey, surround yourself with some people that you can truly share your heart with, and and, uh, it's all going to work out in the end. Absolutely. So Mark chapter 4. Let's get it started. All right. So this one's one's a very familiar passage that it starts off with because it's the parable of the sower and the soil, the four different types of ground. We'll mention that in a minute. But here's the first thing that caught my attention in going back and reviewing this chapter— It says, and he began to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And the first thing I started thinking about was the terrain of Jesus' life and his ministry. And that kind of jumps out at me as I read that, because you have, there's two main types of terrain in Jesus' life. There is the seaside which is where he's at here, and the sea is always, it seems like it's always with the multitudes, and it's always about teaching the multitudes. And what's the other main terrain? The mountains. The mountains. And while that's not here in this chapter, it's already been looked at a couple of times in Mark, but the mountains are for solitude and for prayer. And he would take a few disciples with him up in into the mountains at times, but Largely, the seaside was the multitudes and the teaching, the public ministry. The mountains, it seems, were for solitude and prayer and that private uh, walk with the Father. And I just want to say right off the get-go here, we all need to be engaged in both of those. Yes. I mean, I'm not. it's not just about being a pastor or a missionary or whatever. All of us, as the followers of Jesus Christ, need both of those types of terrain in our, in our life. I think and those the, the actual terrain may look different. In everyone's lives, you know, if, if you live in the middle of a big city, you may not be able to frequent, you know, the seaside and the mountains. But I think the, the principle and the application is still the same. We've got to have the time where we are engaged in our area of ministry, but we can't be so focused on engaging with everybody that we miss out on the times to get alone with just us and God and to be able to reconvene with the Father and refocus. And we see that so many times throughout Mark. There's a balance that's displayed in Jesus' life, and I think that balance is largely lost And it's, okay, I'm going to be fair. From outside looking in, I feel like that balance is largely lost. I know that there are a lot of people that labor in the church ministry, whether they're a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or whatever they may do. And they're very engaged in that public ministry, and they're genuine. They care about the people. They want to be a help. But they don't have that solitude life. They don't have that time away. And then there are people and places that, tend to want to do that withdrawal and be in solitude and and not engage with people. And and that can get unbalanced, too. And we really need to look at the example of Jesus and practice both in our life. Sure. And, of course, there's other places that Jesus, we see his ministry. There's the synagogues. There are the streets. And then what I would call the stops along the way, you know, the woman at the well and Bartimaeus and uh, the lepers. And so all these areas of ministry. Now, terrain is a great lead into the content of this chapter because if you're familiar with Mark 4, it's full of parables and they all have to do with the ground and planting and sowing. And so the very first one is the parable of the sower. 
that. Why don't you run the highlights of that one for us? Well, I think, you know, with the parable of the sower, you, you see put on display the, the four types of ways that anytime the, the truth of God, the Word of God is, is presented, it, it falls on those four types of ground. And we can make all sorts of applications. You know, the ground can be uh, the lost soul uh, receiving the truth of salvation. The ground can also be uh, maybe the, the wayward son that you know needs to get back into focus, the discouraged believer. The, the bottom line is this ground is always symbolic of the hearer, the person to whom uh, the seed is being sown into. And I think— And more specifically, the heart of that person. Yes. And I think it's important to, to know, too, that at various points in our lives, I, I personally believe we're all for— uh, types of soil at, at various different like points split in personality? Time. Yeah, I mean, no. there's... There, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> well, what I was saying was there, there's times where, I mean, we can be like sold out, devout, on-fire children of God, and we can find ourselves in thorny ground where, you know, there's a time where we're distracted and there's some truth that's given to us, but it gets choked out because at that point in time, we're far too distracted. And then, you know, the Lord can get a hold of our heart and we can turn right back into that good soil. So as you read down through here, don't fall into the trap of saying, yep, bless God, I'm gloriously saved. I'm good soil. The, mm. the content is we have to be on guard to make sure that our heart stays good soil. So you're saying that we are all a lot like these 12 that were following Jesus then. Yes. Because it, it's almost chapter by chapter. They're swinging back and sometimes within the same chapter, they're swinging back and forth. I mean, and we're going to see that in a little bit with Mark chapter number four. I mean, at the very end of this chapter, just to jump ahead a little bit, but they're about to learn a great lesson on faith in the midst of storms that it seems like they're learning this lesson time and time and time again. So, you know, how many times were they stony ground or were they thorny ground? I, I think it's kind of irrelevant because we know that eventually the lesson, the lesson stuck. They became yeah. good ground. Let's, let's make the point right here that, that I think is a relevant and needs to be oft-repeated point. Our growth in our faith and our walk with Christ is a lifelong process. Yes. I have not arrived and I, I need to remember that, that honest humility. I have not arrived, but as Paul said, I press toward the mark, and the Lord is working. He's, he's going to finish the work that he started. Now, on this parable, from about verse 2 through 9, you get the parable, and the whole multitude's listening. Then in verse 13 through 20, you get the explanation of the parable, and he explains it. Yes. You don't really need me to explain <laughs> a lot, because he explains it. But what's really interesting is in the middle of that, now, I want to read verses 9 through 12, and then I'm going to ask you a really tough question. All right. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? So here's my question. Why did Jesus not want everybody to understand? I was afraid that you were going to ask me a question like that. <laughs> you know, because that's a, that's a tough one. And, and I, I'm going to answer it how I would answer it. I think that there is a little bit of insight that's provided a little bit later on in the chapter as well. You know, when you come down to uh, to verse number uh, 23, 
he, he uses that uh, similar statement again where he says, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. And the context of that word here, it's more than just an audible recognition of noise. But it's more hearing that I may hearken to and that I may understand. And so what, he, what he's saying is, to you who hear, to you who measure out, to, to what degree you have that understanding and you dedicate yourself to understanding, you know, it's, it's revealed in, in another portion of Scripture. I, I, believe, uh, I believe it's, it's Peter, uh, that, it is Peter, when he gives the answer, but whom, whom do ye say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. And Jesus says, you know, this, this came, you, ha, you acquired this knowledge because the Father hath revealed it unto you. So we understand that there is that reality that the Father reveals truths of Jesus, of his Son. But we have the responsibility to dedicate ourselves to, you know, to having that desire to acquire, and I think you see Ooh, that. It, yeah, write that down. Desire to acquire, and you see that back in verse number ten, because the multitudes aren't the ones that ask Jesus, "Hey, what do you mean by this parable?" They hear it, they leave. Okay, yeah, it sounded cool, and they go on. But those that had the genuine heart, like man, there is, I want more of Jesus. They ask, they persist, and then that understanding is given more. And so more. let me let me just jump in there and say. Ding, 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 you win. All right. I mean, now, in all seriousness, I would say this would be one of those places where if we act like we've got it all figured out, we'd, we'd be, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we'd be wrong. Exactly. But but I, I absolutely agree with what you just said, and I think an important thing for people to understand is we look through this kind of this closer look at an entire book or a gospel account, Jesus is a straight shooter, or let me say this. Yeah, Jesus is a straight shooter. I don't know if these are the best phrases, but he's not always straight-laced. Does that make sense? Or am I saying the same thing two different ways? Let me, let me rephrase it and say this. We have to understand that Jesus has a way about him that is not, that's almost like, I want to use the word besides playful because that sounds... Yeah, I know what you mean. But but he is actually, when he's saying this to them, he is inviting the kind of response yes. that, we're, that we get when we read it. Well, why would Jesus say that? Remember the Syrophoenician woman? You know, Lord, will you heal my daughter? Well, I don't yes. give the, the... The children's meet the dogs. Yeah, thanks. I was trying to think how to say that. Yeah, you don't take the food from the children and give it to dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, what in the world? Uh, Jesus, you can't say that to a lady. Yeah, that. <laughs> what are you doing? And I'm sure all the disciples around him looked at him like, Whoa, we wouldn't even said that. I mean, James and John are wanting to call down fire, but they, they just wanted to call it down on some some bad some preachers, you know? <laughs> they weren't. They wouldn't have talked to this woman that way and brokenhearted as she was. But, but look at the response he gets. Yes. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the table. Always he's provoking this deeper faith. Provocative. That's the word I'm looking for. There we go. Can we go back and start over this whole yeah. thing? Jesus is a straight shooter, but sometimes he's kind of provocative. He's sort of sticking his finger down in the heart and just let's see what we can get out here. Yeah, I think we could say Jesus has no desire in in it being easy. Because I think one thing we understand this in a human, just regular way of life. 
we typically have less appreciation for the stuff that comes easy to us. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that we have to work for, that then we obtain what we work for, it has a deeper meaning to us. Now, we know we don't work for more knowledge. from It's all the work of God. But as he sees more of that intense desire, like, man, I've got a longing. I want more of that. Now he's like, I want to give you more of it because you want it. So the question I asked was, why doesn't Jesus want everybody to understand? The answer, the best I think that we can offer is, Jesus wants everybody to understand, but he also knows the truth about people. And those multitudes that would gather often would gather to be fed, to be healed, to see the big show. But when it comes down to it, they weren't interested in really knowing the deeper truths, but these disciples were. And I think verse 33 and 34 helps us understand a little bit too on this. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them, and when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. So Jesus is inviting this the inner circle into the place of deeper learning, and he's not, he's not just going to carry a big old fanfare around. Let's put it this way. If Jesus was on social media, he wouldn't care how many followers he's got. Yep. He would care about the quality of the following. Yes. As I started to study out the rest of this chapter, and I was looking at all the different parables that are given, I thought, man, this could take a lot of time if we try to break down each one. But then what what actually hit me was, I thought, there's some general observations I'm making as I read this chapter that I'd just like to give the audience. And here's the first one. Jesus, and we've just been talking about it, but Jesus shares truth with everyone, but he invests in his true disciples. Yes. So... I guess, can we redo this and put that at the beginning of that conversation? <laughs> you can tell we're well-scripted here on yes. this uh, this uh, exponential study here. But I think that's a point that I, or an observation I make as I read this chapter. Jesus is sharing truth with everyone. He wants everybody to hear it, but he invests in the true disciples, as these verses we've highlighted reveal. Let me go ahead and give you the second general observation. We can talk about that a little bit. I think I see also in this chapter that Jesus is modeling for us a heart for God that sees the reality and truth of God in everything. What I mean by that is he takes a sower sowing seed. He takes, you know, a, a, a candle and a candlestick. He takes the mustard seed. All these just natural things but with spiritual application. In other words, the ability to see the work of God in everything around us. And I believe Jesus is modeling that. I mean, we don't have to get into the meaning of all the parables. Let's just learn this. How do I live my life with a heart for God that allows me to see God in everything? Absolutely. An awareness of God in every aspect. I I mean, we really shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is able to craft these good moral lessons from these everyday tasks because he is the one that created the everyday task. He's the one that created the mustard seed. He's the one that uh, that created the soil and the seed and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, it works towards his plan and his goal. So for him to be able to correlate that to us, that's what we need to be seeing. The work of God, how it displays the hand of God, and ultimately the purposes of God in all things. We were talking about this yesterday, the meaning of theology. Today, mm-hmm. theology means what? study of God. Well, there's there's a sense of that in what we're talking about, right? The study of God. But we get the idea of, I'm going to learn all the doctrines, I'm going to learn all the attributes, I'm going to learn all this stuff. But the old meaning, if you look at the Latin words that make, the, make up the word theology, it meant to be one with God in prayer, to live your life in union with God. That's true theology. 
And Paul in Ephesians is praying that for the Ephesian Christians, and it's in our Bible. Look at this. That the God, this is part of his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so Paul's just praying for that same thing, that God will give us eyes of the heart to see him in everything, to have true wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of God. Let me just point out one more thing. As far as an overall application out of this chapter, it would be at the end of the chapter. So much we could say about this, but the disciples in the boat in the storm, all that's going on there, they're afraid, they're panicking. Jesus is asleep in the boat. By the way, that's common, the chaos. But here's the principle I, I want to derive from that. Stay close to Jesus in every situation and learn something. And what I mean by that is in the boat, in the storm, they, they're panicking, they're afraid. They're forgetting that Jesus is right there with them. But the good thing is they were still with Jesus, and they get to observe him do something, and they learn from it. And so no matter what you're going through, storms, you know, or by the seaside, seashore when he's teaching, or you're in the boat in the storm, stay close to Jesus in every situation and learn something. Yes. The main thing that you see that they learn and I think we were reminded this time and time again, their statement, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. All throughout the book of Mark, throughout the gospel accounts, you see these, these instances where they're just blown away by the person of Jesus. And that is the main thing that we need to learn is there's never anything that catches him off guard. There's never anything that he's not equipped for. And he desires and delights to be involved in every single aspect of our life. So for the listener who's writing anything down and wants a little extra homework, yep. what, what, one other thing that, I, that caught my attention in this chapter is the reactions or responses of Jesus. Now, if you'll just write these verses down and look at them later, verse 13 and verse 40, okay, you're going to see Jesus respond or react. And you know, right here where we're at in verse 40, when he turns and looks at the disciples after he calms the sea and he says, why are you so fearful? Yeah. What are you afraid of? Why do you ha- why do you not have faith? And and I think you got to read it that way. You have to read it like Jesus is responding to what has just happened and what he's seeing in them. And it reminded me of other places. So jot these down. Go back and look at chapter two, verse eight. Go back and look at chapter three, verse five, and verse twenty-three. And go back and look at chapter four and verse thirty-three and see all these responses of Jesus. And I would summarize this this way. You'll see in these responses, how he responds to people, whether it's the scribes, the disciples, whatever it is, you'll see his perception. He can really see beyond the surface level. You'll see his purpose. He is always staying true to his one main focus, which is to do the Father's will. And you'll see, and I I use this word kind of with a question mark beside it, his perplexity. The reason I put a question mark beside it is it's kind of hard to say Jesus is perplexed because that word means to be puzzled and confused. So I don't mean it that way, but I mean, I think he looked at the people and he just would often say things like, how do you not get this? And it was just, there's some perplexity in his responses. And I think if we understand that Jesus was looking at the disciples that way and understand that while he's not disappointed in me, because he's always got me, still, I think sometimes looks at me and says, okay, 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 you're not getting this. Let's go through this one more time. Yep. And that might explain sometimes why we're having to go back and do summer school. <laughs> time and time again. Hmm. In the heart of a champion, 